Hello, and welcome to Categorically Oscars, episode 16. I'm Chris. And I'm Kyle. And today is the first of a two-parter, because we are tackling one of the big ones, Best Picture 1939, um, considered by many to be the greatest year in Hollywood history, 1939, and I think that the slate of nominees this year uh, definitely bears that out. Yeah, the, without spoiling anything, they're definitely impressive as a set of nominees. Um, I'm not sure it's the best year in film for me personally. Um, in terms mm-hmm. of like my personal top 10, I think 66 has some amazing films. And there are a few other years that I, I kind of, you know, really love. But 39, definitely one of the better ones. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be good. And... Um, mm-hmm. We've we're just the two of us this week, um, but thanks again to Tim for coming on last time, and um, we have some more people in the pipeline coming on to to discuss their Oscar loves and peeves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, without uh, any spoilers just yet, some exciting ones that we've got coming down. So it's going to be a good uh, a good next few episodes. But yep, today uh, just the just the basic duo. Um, and I was going to say as well that I agree 1939, maybe not my personal best year. I think mine would probably also fall in the mid-60s to mid-70s, just mm. in terms of the number of films that I love from a given year. Um, but just in terms of like the prestige of these films and the f- fact that almost all of them have survived to this day as um, critically beloved in one way or another and to varying degrees i think is a um a pretty outstanding feat yeah and lots of them still popular too as well so mm-hmm. yeah some might might say timeless some might say yes and some of these films do did at the time describe themselves as timeless uh one of them that we're going to talk about next week just says yep this is a timeless story so get on board <laughs> Okay, so what we what we talking about this week? Well, today uh, we are talking about the first five films alphabetically, not including the winner, of course. So we are talking about Dark Victory, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Love Affair, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and Ninochka. Um, so what are your thoughts about Dark Victory? Get right to it. Well, I'd already seen this years ago and um, really liked it. And I thought it it bared up a second time very strongly. Um, I feel like, you know, when we talked about Love Story, this is a similar thing. But I, I was kind of, it did take me a while to get beyond the ethics of the medical profession once again with this. Um, <laughs> where you've got a doctor, in this case... Um, not willing to tell his patient that she's dying um, and actually signs a medical report to that effect. I mean, is there no, like, repercussions for that? Uh, if there are, we we don't get to see them, but I can't imagine that that would fly with a ethics review. Um, yeah, doctors in films seem to have a strange reticence to be forthright with their patients they seem to go the route of telling a close friend or relative and just asking them to keep it under their hat (laughs) to spare them to spare their feelings or something and then he gets all sanctimonious about how she should be facing death and it's like well you're the reason that she's kind of delayed in her acceptance of death because you didn't tell her and then she had to find out through you know kind of underhanded dealings with her best friend yeah she Mm. not not a very ethical doctor and i mean we don't know how good a doctor he is in general we never really see him do much other than look in her eyes and ask questions but we assume he's a good doctor i guess yeah it's he doesn't yeah george prince character really doesn't come off very well Mm. although he is sanctimonious about the whole you know, what are you doing with the rest of your life thing. Um, 
But I do think the film asks quite interesting questions about that and about like mortality and terminal illness and should we be noble in the face of death, which she eventually chooses to be, mm-hmm. um, or should we go out in a blaze of glory or even just end it before you even get to that point? So there there are a lot of questions about that and the idea of legacy and how we want people to view us once we're gone. And the film does have a lot to unpack and it's surprisingly generous with that, um, given that there were a lot of films like this made, not to anywhere near the quality of this, but there were a lot of sort of tragic weepies, um, so to speak, that were a lot of them quite bad. Uh, in this era and mm-hmm. you know you had Bogart and Davis churning out five films a year um, but it's it's kind of I think this one really does rise to the top um, for the kind of film that it is yeah for sure um, it, it for the most part I think it kind of avoids a lot of the trappings of uh, as you say these weepy doomed young heroine kind of stories and it does, I think, despite the unethical doctor, it does, yeah, shine a spotlight on some of these issues of dying and the philosophy of dying. Um, and yeah, her her overall arc seems to play out in a believable way, and it's well paced. Her turn from, um, you know hedonistic pleasure seeking to finally accepting her fate and kind of having a more peaceful end to her life although i mean some films and other authors might argue that what difference does it make she dies anyway but still here it seems to work for her yeah like it's got it is a little contrived that you know the way that they frame the illness is she's going to eventually she'll be fine and then she'll you won't be able to see for a couple of hours and then that'll be it mm-hmm. so it kind of already like it kind of already tells us what's going to happen at the end uh, yeah yeah it's true and that, that is kind of a way of a way of preventing it from being this con- sort of the slog of the illness taking its toll you know which might feel a bit heavier uh but i i mean Really, the the reason to see this for me is Betty Davis's performance, which I just think is magnificent, mm-hmm. um, and especially in the last twenty minutes. But you know, because you know, a lot of her strengths are on show throughout the first half, and you know, the hostess, the extrovert, you know, personality, personality, personality. Um, but I think what's good about this performance is she has this really nervous energy that that show you know it's kind of she's playing somebody who's inherently quite insecure even throughout all of this bravado and um you know whether she's in denial about her illness or whether she's you know nervous because she loves the doctor and you know davis couldn't really do subtle um mm-hmm. but what she brings to this is is quite specific and heartbreaking. And I think when she does lose her sight, the reaction to that and trying to appear convincing while dealing with that just happening to her, I think is just amazing. It's one of the best pieces of acting I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And just, um, I think it's maybe as subtle as she can get, but you're right. It is. She does do a lot of very specific things that work throughout the film. And I also was impressed by the physical side of the last 20 minutes, just the way she's able to get that kind of glazed over unfocused look of someone who can't see. And, you know, we kind of take for granted the idea of being able to focus on objects and, you know, tell what we're looking at. And she really, really looked like she couldn't, which was, Mm. and even down to the way her eyes sometimes didn't seem to be looking in the same direction, even Um, just some incredible physical work that I thought was outstanding. Yeah. And she was nothing if not prepared as an actress. She was very meticulous, Mm -hmm. you know, 
knew her lines and everything and was professional. And yeah, she you can tell she's done some element of research to this. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, before we move on, um, I don't think the same can be said of Humphrey Bogart's uh, attempt at an Irish no. accent. Uh, I don't know why well, he even tried. <laughs> it was bad, and it's. I sort of struggled to understand where the character fit in the film. Um, mm-hmm. But it doesn't help that he would then become a lot more famous after this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because when you look back on it, he sticks out like a sore thumb as not being cast particularly well and probably too old as well for the part. I mean, he's supposed to be this young book of a stable, you know, stable um, manager. And to me, he just seems a little over the hill even then. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know if Humphrey Bogart was ever, ever appeared young enough to play that kind of part even when he was young enough um i think he he definitely aged very quickly with his lifestyle and everything else but um yeah just everything about that character and that performance was off-putting and weird um i did enjoy ronald reagan um the future president as uh, <laughs> as the kind of sensitive cad character <laughs> Um, kind of guides Betty Davis back into uh, the doctor's arms. Maybe he could have played the stable hand, honestly. I mean, he was the right age and kind yeah. of the, kind of the right rugged character, I think, might have worked. Um, I've never heard him try an accent, so I don't know how he would have done it, but maybe they could have just dropped that, whatever, whoever played it. Um. Final word I want to say, I thought Geraldine Fitzgerald was also very good and deserved her nomination. Yes, I agree. Okay, uh, let's move on to Goodbye Mr. Chips. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, and, yes. Yeah, and there's several decades um, that this story spans. Um, what did you think of, firstly, what did you think of the portrayal of school teaching? in this well um it was a relief to see this film honestly because my only exposure to british boarding schools prior to this was lindsay lindsay anderson's if so um i was quite happy to see that there was a you know it wasn't all like that i mean not that i thought that it was an accurate portrayal 100 percent accurate but it was nice to see a british boarding school where the kids weren't abused and were generally having a good time Mm. um and as to the profession of teaching, I get, we don't really see much of it, but I guess that was kind of the style of the time, which was mostly kids just kind of reciting and expected mm. to sit still for hours and hours and just kind yeah. of hear things and like uh, soak things up rather than actually engaging. I don't know. Um, it seems mostly kind of a bygone way of education. Is I mean, I don't know if that's still kind of um, the way of the private boarding school in Britain these days, but... I would doubt it. Like, mm. it does feel almost from a different planet, this. Like, it's very archaic. Um, like, mm-hmm. just turn to page 12 and read kind of thing. It's just... And the whole the use of the cane, etc., that definitely dates the film. I mean, I don't... Yeah, the corporal yeah. punishment aspect is... Um, and how he just... Oh, yeah, I used to I used to whip your father all the time. <laughs> very, very <laughs> casual about physical abuse in the school, you know? <laughs> but I, like... Because there is a little bit at the beginning about him uh, needing to win over the trust of the kids. But mm-hmm. it's literally one scene, and then it's like he's learned his lesson and he's an amazing teacher and like you know i know a lot of people who are teachers of you know as do you (laughs) yeah um and you know that it's not as simple as all that you you know it's it's about development you know developing as a teacher so yeah from that perspective it is a little shorthanded well i don't know i mean he I guess there's two steps, right? First, he is a good teacher, which, um, I mean, they don't really show that. 
really they just kind of tell us that oh his students are great at latin and everything's great but you know before he goes to the alps with paul heinreid he doesn't have much of a rapport at all with the kids right there's that he tries to talk to the one kid before they leave for the holidays and the kid just bolts you know um yeah so i I mean, obviously, it is kind of abrupt after that. Like, you're right, after that, he tells one joke and suddenly he's Mr. Chips forever. But um, I guess it it takes a while. Um, it takes him, I mean, it takes him literally decades to do it, but it takes us an hour or so, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I, I, this, I wasn't keen on this one the first time I saw it, but I think this time I liked it um, a lot more. Um, and I think like most, mostly everything up to the marriage is pretty great. Um, and I really enjoyed the scene where <clears throat> they're up on the mountain and he meets Gree Garson. And it's just this mm-hmm. random scene where they're like stranded in the fog in, I think it's Denmark or somewhere. Yeah, and, um, somewhere. and it's the most polite and well-mannered conversation to have in in what really is quite a serious situation. They're like, God knows how far up on the mountain. And um, they're stranded. But um, And she offers them this sandwich. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking I hope they're not there that long because this sandwich was the smallest sandwich I've ever seen. <laughs> I know. I thought that too. I mean, these tiny, like, two bites and it's gone. They're like the size of an <laughs> egg. I don't understand. Yeah. Not well, a fan of crusts, I don't think, Greer Garson. No, no. Um, yeah, <laughs> ridiculous, those sandwiches. I did love the, just before, in the in the sequence, the pretty long uh, sequence of him climbing the mountain, trying to reach her, um, the lovely bit of uh, that, his, his lovely reaction to seeing that cross of, you know, here in the memory of someone who died here. <laughs> His reaction to that is so wonderful. Um, <laughs> and yeah, when he finally reaches her and they have that very polite, very British uh, flirtation is is quite delightful. Um, have you ever, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but um, she did that. She recreated that scene for radio with Leslie Howard uh, the same year, oh, I guess. Really? Um, yeah, Robert Donnett was... I don't know, unavailable for some reason. So Greer Garson did it with Leslie Howard in the Mr. Chips role. And it's somehow even more uh, British and polite with the two of them. <laughs> well, it would be, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful little uh, back and forth. They have really good chemistry together. But um, but yeah, this... Uh, I like the whole marriage sequence. Um, and... I like the movie until Greer Garson dies because because they do her such an injustice, you know, not not her. Well, yes, her, but also the character. Um, She's so important to him and she's so important to the story. And Greer Garson is just amazing in this role. And then. She just gets sick and dies within two minutes off screen. Mm. Not even a death what? scene. No, not even a death scene. What was she like just out for the day and they said, well, we have to crack on and and get on with it. So we'll just throw that scene out. Where was the scene of them saying goodbye? Where was? <laughs> and then at the end of the day, da- I'm skipping ahead, but at the end of the damn movie, he doesn't even think about her. He thinks about the students, and I get that they were important, but he doesn't even say, "Oh, I'm, you know, I'm gonna see my beloved Kathy again" or anything like that. Come on, man. She's, ne- she was... she's hardly mentioned after that. She's hardly mentioned. No. I think one line said by another teacher. Yeah, and uh, he briefly looks at a picture of her and says, "You were right. I'm gonna be headmaster," and that's it. Yeah. Ah, uh, terrible treatment. It, but it goes back to kind of what I was saying earlier. Like th- this whole thing spans about sixty years, and it's. I think the film has too much on its plate 
there's I know that there's um it's from a book um mm-hmm. but it does feel like there's a lot of plot to get in and there's a lot of specific scenes for the character's journey that have to be put in and um I think once she dies it becomes particularly transparent as as an exercise the screenplay um specifically when the war happens and chips is telling this boy he's got no chance of being involved in the war because he's not old enough he's only 16 or 15 or whatever and then the very next scene (laughs) it skips forward to when they're having the memorial service because he's been killed in the war this kid and, yeah. and even within that scene, you get a voiceover of the conversation we've just heard a minute before, literally a minute yeah. before, that was like two years ago in the story or whatever. So I, I just like, the longer it went, I did feel like the film is just like taking sentimentality and just, you know, whacking you over the head with it. Um, mm-hmm. And it does become very heavy handed in the second half. Yeah. Yeah, it it kind of it went off the rails for me when it gets into the war bit. It gets very repetitive at that point, um, just endless. Oh, and here's some other people you met earlier who have died, and here's another list of people, and then Paul Heinrich dies too. I mean, I was I was <laughs> expecting them, um, I was expecting them to address in some way that he was German, um, but it just seemed very poorly handled just having those two boys saying, Oh, why'd he mention a German guy? And it's never brought up again. And that could have been a more interesting scene. Like maybe see him, see him preparing to go off and fight and see his conflicted loyalties and everything else. I get that it's not his movie, but he, again, like Kathy was a very significant supporting character. And I think, Again, just to kind of get rid of him off screen was doing an injustice to the character. Okay, what about Robert uh, Donat then? How because this he beat um, Clark Gable. I think he was expected to beat Clark Gable. Is that right? He yeah, I, yeah. Gable I think that he, won, hadn't he yeah he had he had won for um, you know happened one night, and I think that Robert Donat had some a bit of Oscar do um, behind him at this point. Um, like the year before he had done the Citadel and he'd been nominated for that. And I think he should have won for that because he was fantastic in that. Um, and so it kind of had a sense of him being ready, I think. And then of course that meant that he pushed James Stewart back a year and Stewart won mm. the next year. But um, that's not to say I don't think he's a, He's very good in this. He's very enjoyable. And I think that he um, overall plays um, chips at his various ages and his various stages quite well. It's very enjoyable to watch. Yeah, I think he gets the tone of the film perfectly. He's um, a much lighter to- lighter performance for the film than there could have been. And, you know, it would. I think it could have been unbearable with somebody who was taking it more seriously. Like that mountain mm-hmm. scene really is played beautifully, and I think everything when he's like old is is also done really well. Like yeah. even the deathbed scene has got an element of comedy to it, you know that you can't hear him, and then he's you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Yeah. He he clearly has a great time, and Chips is a very well chipper character throughout. Even when he's at his lowest point, he still kind of has that kind of energy to him that's waiting for release. Um, that is then, of course, released by none other than Greer Garson, the, who's, yeah. you know, perfect debut. for that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Her debut and her first, we saw her last nominated performance recently, and now we see her first. Definitely, maybe weird Not that lead. she was nominated for lead. Yeah. Um, yeah. But still, um, a fantastic performance. Um I just watch her with a smile on my face throughout this film. And that that tracking shot of them on the boat where they're talking about the Danube and they both um they both see it as blue 
Oh, that just melts my heart every time I see it. It's so adorable <laughs> that that she says, oh, but it is blue. Oh, she loves him. It's perfect. Oh, it is nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, speaking of um, bolts, uh, next we're going to talk about yep. Love Affair. What, what did you think of this one? I think um, of all the movies... Um, this year, this is probably the kind of lightest of them all, um, just in terms of there isn't, there isn't a whole lot at stake other than will they, won't they? Yeah. And that being said, I think it's, I think it's a great movie. Um, I like the chemistry between Charles Boyer and, um, Irene Dunn. As we mentioned, and I didn't know this until a few days ago, but they had another movie together this year as well called um, When Tomorrow Comes, which is also pretty good. Um, okay. So they they have a good um, rapport. Uh, I like their meeting. I think that their falling in love on the boat is paced surprisingly well for this genre, which typically um, gets the falling in love over way too fast and it's just kind of a given but i kind of bought it these two finding each other um how about you yeah it's funny that you say it's the lightest it's probably the the film i have the least amount to say um about from from the films of 1939 that i've seen um but i do think it's fine i i actually disagree about the beginning i think that's too long and mm. I just feel like it's funny because, you know, the cruise itself, they meet and it's presented, it's presented in a romantic way, but there is an element of deceit um, to how they're both kind of having an affair. Uh, they've both got other people that they're, um, they're carrying on with Um outside of the boat so it's sort of it's a bit of a brief encounter situation um yeah but i I, but not as good as that but um yeah i i I did kind of think okay i I enjoyed the initial meeting on the boat and yeah they they look quite well together for a you know considering it's charles boyer and i don't really get the appeal of charles boyer so romantic (laughs) leading man to be honest because because he's french you know (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was that was the appeal of Maurice Chevalier too, you know. He just that's all he brought to the table, but it was enough. Well, it's like um, I just don't get it. He's just he's sort of like almost frigid. I just it, mm-hmm. it's he's he's just very stern and um, yeah, cold and stuffy and. And when he know, tries I, to I, do when he tries to do passionate, he just looks angry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a single leading lady in which I thought he he seemed, you know, genuinely appealing to. But um I think he was good in Clooney Brown with Jennifer Jones. I think that's quite a nice yeah. romance. Um but I can't say that he had like sizzling chemistry with anyone really. I mean the chemistry's no. fine here, but it's not exactly red hot. No, it's not. But yeah, I thought the beginning dragged, and um, the, you know, I think Maria Uspenskaya is is good in a small role, but I did kind of think, oh, can we just get this bit over with? Whether mm. um, whether at the house, and you know, for me, there are long pockets of it where I struggle struggle to really be that engaged with it as a story. Yeah, considering it's only eighty six minutes long, there's a lot of dead time in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, and just the the pacing is pretty lackluster. Um, I tell you, it loses it. It loses it for me with the uh, car crash and the contrived <laughs> keeping them apart thing, because oh. up to that point, it just kind of was proceeding at its own pace. It was a nice little love story, and then it said, "Oh wait, we need pathos here. We need." um some tragedy we need something to keep them apart and so again kind of a vague thing oh she gets paralyzed you know we never 
see her having too too much difficulty with that um but for some reason she thinks that love won't survive that and they have to have i do like the writing in the scene where they come together at the end though where they're where he's talking about his own experience but they've reversed their role in the conversation to kind of make it easier to confess what happened i thought that was great Um, yeah that was very well written yeah and it, it was it was dancing around the issue as well in a way that was actually quite clever you weren't kind of like oh just get on with it say what you feel it was kind of it was you know unraveled in a very nice way um Mm -hmm. but yeah i i mean she has the car crash and so if you're committed to this woman do you then go back the next night and the night after that and the night after that to the to that empire state building Mm -hmm. do you do that I would think. I mean, I would, yeah. Um, so if that happens, can she not call the Empire State Building and say, there's a man, he's coming there every night, can you please tell him that I'm at Soul Soul <laughs> Hospital? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or is that, that too sense. presumptuous? Was she in a coma think, or something? <laughs> well, again, we don't really see that. It's just kind of a, a thing that happens that doesn't inconvenience her too, too much, it seems, but... Um, more of an embarrassment more than anything else is what she's feeling about being paralyzed. Um, and yeah, yeah we don't know. Also, also, does he not read the newspaper? Cause I, she's not famous <laughs> or anything, but I think I would think that an accident that involved a woman being paralyzed outside the empire state building would have been in the news at some point. Well, she is kind of famous or like, do, doesn't somebody want a photo of them on the boat? earlier on they're kind of like society people aren't they yeah i suppose so i hadn't thought of that i just thought that the the picture taking was kind of something that happened on boats at the time maybe there was a a cruise photographer who would go around getting people's pictures for Mm, memories Uh, that was just what i assumed i have no idea if that's an accurate thing that happens on cruise ships yeah um this was this was a model for Sleepless in Seattle, I think, mm. wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Sort of this and the shop around the corner, sort of a strange mix of those two, ended up being Sleepless in Seattle. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I did like it. I think it's a slow burn. I think especially when you compare it with screwball comedies of the era, this is very much feels very earnest and takes itself a bit seriously. Um, and it's it's not exciting. It's not, no. And I think that was something that Leo McCary wanted because I think he was sick of doing comedies and he wanted to do a serious movie. So maybe he went a little overboard with how seriously the story took itself. Yeah. What? Um, this didn't win any Oscars. I think it was a record at the time. Six Oscars, no wins. Um, yeah. With My Man Godfrey also, right? Yeah, and I think also um, The Love Parade, early Chevalier movie, also uh, went over six back in the day. Um, yeah. But yeah, big, big shutout. Why do you think that is then? Because I think also this was remade into An Affair to Remember, which mm-hmm. also didn't win any Oscars. I thought it won Best Song or something like Did that. Did it? Oh, let me quickly check. Um, but in regards to the Oscars that it lost, I mean, it kind of didn't have a chance in most of these categories. Um, I don't think it stood a chance in hell of winning Best Picture. It, yeah. I, Irene Dunn wasn't going to win Best Actress against Vivian Lee. Um, it was nominated for Best Story, but again, um, I think probably justifiably didn't take that one. It lost best song to "The Joker Is Wild" from the for the song "All the Way." I see. <laughs> yeah, "The Joker Is Wild," which is a film oh starring Frank Sinatra and Mitzi Gaynor and Jan Crane, mm. um, directed by mm. Charles Vidor. Oh well, God. bad luck affair to remember. Yeah, when Sinatra has a song in, I think you you don't have much of a chance. 
Although Love Affair was also nominated for Best Song this year and, of course, lost to Over the Rainbow. And its last nomination was for Art Direction, which it lost to Gone with the Wind, which makes sense. Yes. Gone with the Wind, we will discuss next week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, shall we move on to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington? Yeah. I remember this movie when I first saw it being kind of what brought me around to Frank Capra um, mm. as him finally kind of growing up after because yeah. his movies before this, um, which I enjoyed them, but they got a little too corny at times. And this one seemed to me like, all right, he's finally in the real world. And then, of course, he left it again uh, when he made. Um, it's a wonderful life. He was back in La La Land. But <laughs> when I was watching it again, um, I was surprised by how much Capricorn, I guess, to put it, um, to coin a <laughs> phrase, there was in this movie, especially in the first part, um, when it kind of gives the government primer to Jefferson Smith and by extension to the audience and him wandering around you know, googly-eyed looking at Lincoln and all these places. I'm like, okay, this is straight up just Capra shoving the message in our faces. And I don't think it's necessary. I mean, it's rarely necessary when he decides to do it, but it's even less necessary when you're making a story like this. I mean, we get what we're supposed to expect governments to do. I don't think you need to spend 40 minutes telling us about it. Yeah. It was so long at the beginning. I was just thinking, get on with it. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. It, you know, this really could have been an hour and a half. Um, e- easily. Yeah. But it's, it is interesting that Capra has very anti-corporate messages in his films, but his filmmaking is a little... It does. It feels kind of conservative, um, yeah. In mm-hmm. in in a lot of ways, and you're kind of thinking, is it is it a desire to be all things to all people and not offend anyone? Essentially, or I, I'm trying to think what. How is it that all these films end up coming off as fluff? Um, I think it's kind of that, yeah. And I think he was also kind of keenly aware of the kind of movies that would appeal to the widest um, swathe of the public and the critics and the Academy. I feel like throughout the 30s, he was kind of honing his craft to pump out as many Oscars as he could, to win as many Oscars as he could. And, I mean, he won three, so he was doing all right. But, yeah, I don't know. Um, All of his movies just seem to have this insufferable element to them. And it's just something he does. I mean, maybe with the exception of it happened one night, honestly, I think that might be the, the one that he avoided it the best, but this one, and then he essentially remade it two years later is meet John Doe with his pal, Gary Cooper again. Um, and your fave, Barbara Stanley. And my, yeah. Yeah. Um, and this one actually, I mean, was supposed to be Mr. Deeds Goes to Washington originally, um, uh. but but Gary Cooper was unavailable, so he got a hold of Jimmy Stewart and it became Mr. Smith. Um, but, you know, Jean Arthur's back essentially playing the same person as she was in Mr. Deeds and yeah. very, very similar arc in both of the characters in both of the films. Having said that, the film is the film is good. Um, yes, and I, I it must be depressing, as particularly an American, I think, to look at this. <laughs> you know, the Senate in nineteen thirty nine, and um, really, it's not much different than it is now. <laughs> it's um, it it it's corrupt and it's full of white men with you know, with vested interests, shall we say, and. Um, media media spinning going on in in the background and you know Mm. nothing's changed in uh 90 years you know 80 years no that's pretty sad and it's interesting too because it doesn't 
It doesn't really present the Senate as divided between Republicans and Democrats so much as all of them are just equally worthless, you know? Um, and some of them are overtly corrupt, and the other ones are just kind of there. If they're not part of the grist, if they're not part of the machine, they're just filling the chairs. Um, so it's a it's a very, very... That was what impressed me most, and maybe when I first saw it, that was what kind of blinded me to the things I didn't like about it. But just it would have taken some serious balls to make this film in 1939 with the yeah. situation of the world and everything going on. Um, and yeah, when they first were making it, the Hayes office um, said that it would be a, it would be seen as a attack on the democratic form of government. So this was very, very, um, and he, he said, I, I have this quote, he, he said that the film should make clear that the Senate is made up of a group of fine, upstanding citizens who labor long and tirelessly in the best interests of the nation. <laughs> um, and yeah. I, they definitely didn't take his advice there. Um, because yeah, it's a very, very unflattering portrayal of, um, the people in power. It's also, you mentioned, you know, watching it as an American. Also, it's movies like this that created the myth that what Washington really needs are non-politicians to whip things into shape. You know, mm. if we can just get people in there who have no political background and no political experience they will see through the BS and fix everything. And we've definitely seen that that is a myth. Um, but it's movies like this that helped get it started. So, Yeah, I see what you're saying. I think as, as a character, though, Jefferson Smith is, um, although he's, you know, sort of a proxy, an idea, um, I think Jimmy Stewart is very well suited to playing him and you know the innocent nobility he always brought to every role really i mean was he ever a villain jimmy stewart um i can't i can't think of a time that he was i mean in vertigo he kind of walks a line but he's definitely not a villain he's just kind of a flawed person um yeah. but no yeah he i don't think he ever i don't think he could possibly play an out and out villain he's just so damned likable but yeah, I agree that even though Smith is kind of a um, manic pixie dream senator or whatever you want to call him, um, he's James Stewart plays him with such conviction and such likability that I I accept him as a character and I accept him as a real person, even though he's almost too innocent for his own good. I mean, he is too innocent for his own good, for sure, but he learns very quickly. Yeah, and the... the final extended court sequence is just wonderful um mm -hmm. and the deterioration of the character you know the growing despair yeah it, it i mean it's among that that particular sequence is probably among his best work and this is very mm -hmm. early on for james stewart it's very early on so um it's yeah i think it's impressive and Again, it speaks to the year, you know, Robert Dunnap winning. I'm, I think Stuart may not have been far away from, you know, him and Gable, really. I can't imagine he would be. Yeah, he was definitely, this is like one of his career highs, for sure. What did you think about the conclusion then? Because it is reliant upon uh, Senator Payne. Claude Rain's character realizing the error of his ways, and is that an acceptable conclusion? Because the films like already stacked the odds so much against Smith that there doesn't seem to be a way other than this to turn opinion in his favor. Like it sort of has to resort to this plot point. So, yeah. like, does it work? Um, I. I agree that it is kind of a required plot point rather than a organic ending, but I do think that the film builds to it fairly well. I mean, we definitely see 
um, Payne's conscience bothering him more and more as he does increasingly awful things. And I think we can see him getting close to breaking. And I think Claude Rains does a great performance in kind of showing the increasing strain and the double and the the um, stress of having to do these uh, mutually exclusive things is having on him. Um, I don't know if it works entirely. Um, I do know that the film originally had a much more extended ending that involved explicitly seeing Taylor defeated um, and yeah. James Stewart and, and Gene Arthur going to his hometown and meeting his mother. And it was just much, that's just so much more ridiculous and so much more on the nose that I kind of liked the way it just faded to black in the middle of Claude Rains um, confession yeah, because it kind of, it kind of kept the cynical tone of the rest of the film. We don't see Taylor defeated. We don't see whether um, his uh, um, Senator Payne's confession saves the day we don't get to see what really happens we just see the extent that taylor will go to to get his own way which is pretty horrifying and yeah. it we're good we're done so we kind of have to rely on our own imaginations uh well i hope that turned out well but i think capra did a very was very smart to not explicitly show what happened next um, cause I think that helps keep the rest of the film grounded and realistic. Yeah. 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 I think it overall, it worked for me. Um, did feel it like a tad of a cop out, but I willing to accept it because of the work the film did in other ways to make that sequence so compelling in the first place. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Shall we, shall we move on to Ninochka? All right, yeah, Ninochka, another, well, really one of the few, um, probably the only true comedy uh, in the in the lineup. Goodbye, Mr. Chips definitely had its comedic moments, but it definitely was more, it was a drama for sure. But this one is just Lubitsch uh, at his finest, or among his finest, I think. It's brilliant, isn't it? It's so yeah. funny. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Like the, the some of the dialogue from Wilder and uh, Charles Brackett is just brilliant, and you know it's it's mostly centered around Garbo's one-liners, you know. But um, you even get like the scene where they're at the train station, even the porter gets a line when Ninochka says, "Oh, uh, don't you think carrying other people's bags is a social injustice?" And then he says, "Oh, it depends on the tip." So, like, you've got all these absolute dynamite lines coming from from everyone, really. And it's, um, yeah. And at first, you're thinking, oh, you know, because the script's very much about opposing capitalism and communism. And clearly, it's harsher on the latter of those um, ideologies, but it's very clever all the same. And it's a lot more screwball than I remembered it to be, actually. It, it's just zips along really nicely and it's just a great time Mm -hmm. yeah unlike um some of the other films this year it doesn't it doesn't really have any draggy points and it's just such a such a fun ride that it just carries you along and you're just happy to be there from beginning to end um and it's it doesn't feel like it's almost two hours long it feels uh, shorter just because it's so crisp and so enjoyable even the extent i think probably the only scene that even comes close to dragging is the scene between uh, melvin douglas and Ninochka in the diner where he's trying to get her to laugh but even that is i mean melvin douglas is just so damn good and yes. tripping over himself and death getting more and more desperate and she just is stonewalling him it's amazing and i love that he tells the joke and he gets a laugh out of the entire restaurant except her <laughs> <laughs> and it's such a terrible joke but it's <laughs> yeah. i know it, douglas is so good and it's just like 
he wasn't even nominated and it, I guess it was just such a competitive year but mm-hmm. yeah it's a shame and the, the first time I watched this I was amazed because I never knew that he was young the only yeah. films I'd ever seen him in were like being there and HUD um, and I never sang for my father where he's an old man and suddenly like oh my god he was dashing yeah. where what happened yeah obviously he got older i was like where has this guy been why haven't why is this the first time i've seen this melvin douglas that was a revelation i just love as well when when uh he brings her back to his house and he's just pouring over her and she's just having none of it and uh he's just mm-hmm. like a kid in a sweet shop it's so <laughs> funny it like reminds right reminded me of um when tony curtis has got marilyn monroe on the yacht in um, mm-hmm. some like it hot and he's pretending mm-hmm. to be this he owns the yacht just reminded me of that it's just very very funny um, yeah like what do you think about because you've always got that issue when you've got two characters in a romance that um, are very different from each other and in this case Ninochka's really severe um, at least at first like sometimes when that happens like the path to romance could feel a bit forced and like maybe compromise what one of the characters stands for in the first place like how mm-hmm. how do you feel like like dealt with that well i think that um i think it definitely when she does melt it does it is a pretty complete and abrupt melt um yeah. but in terms of her like uh giving up her ideals or whatever i think that's i think it works because it's kind of the arc that all the russian characters are going through like one way or another they're losing their attachment to soviet ideals and embracing the west um and this is how this is how she does it um it's through being romanced by melvin douglas and i can't think of too many situations where that wouldn't work so um i think it worked for me yeah i think it worked although i think mostly worked because of garbo and this mm-hmm. time watching garbo i can't believe this like we're going to talk about gone with the wind next week but i can't believe there's three performances in this category for me that are just outstanding and i think garbo's yeah. is one of them and it's, you know, there's there's such a controlled nature to Ninochka, but there's also this strange vulnerability, um, that's perfect for for this film in particular. And I think she just completely excels, and you know, she becomes a viable romantic option. Like she could make this character grotesque and you know, not not appealing to anyone, but there's some vulnerability yeah. there, and it's not too off putting and even when she melts, after she melts, um, you know, the script works the politics back into the plot and then she gets to demonstrate the character's ideology again and the passion she has for that. So I think there's a lot of consistency throughout throughout all parts of the film. Um, Mm -hmm. So I just think it's, like, stunning. Really enjoyed it this time. I think it's her best of the nominations that she got. I I would agree there. Yeah. So she really does a great job in balancing the the sternness and the kind of devotion which kind of carries all all the way to the end that devotion to the motherland or the fatherland or whatever they called it um at the time. Yeah. She right to the end she wants to be a good Russian. She does kind of believe in it. Um and I think that she plays that conflict very well just i i kept a count of how many times they referenced uh i want to be alone and i counted three um, <laughs> yeah various you know um i loved the the deadpan the first one when she first arrives and and one of the trio asks her you know do you want to be alone and she just says no <laughs> yes <laughs> um and i loved those three guys um the, yeah, uh, I, they were I can't think of the um, one of them I knew better as um, Gottlieb 
uh, what's it? Sig Ruman is the one with the beard. Um, he plays Gottlieb in Night at the Opera. That was where I always knew him. Um, <laughs> and of course, the other two, they're just so wonderful together. Um, they play off each other really well. I think maybe the film could have um, developed them a little bit more, their individual personalities um, yeah. a little bit more, but not enough to make me uh, really dislike any aspect of it. I did um, enjoy the uh, towards the end when they're leaving her right after she reads the censored letter. Um, one of them says to her, they can't censor our memories, can they? And I just thought, well, George Orwell would disagree. <laughs> Actually, maybe maybe this is where he got the idea. He saw that in the theater and he's thinking, but what if they could? And he went from there. <laughs> could be. This um yeah, it's 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 like this very much feels like a Lubitsch film as well, even though it's a wilder screenplay, it's it's like a real it's a match made in heaven really. Yeah. And actually, um, Wilder later said that Lubitsch contributed to the script so much that they tried to get him included. Um, they tried to get him a writer's credit, but the Writers Guild uh, wouldn't let them. Okay, um, so those are the the first half of the nominees from 1939, and in the next episode we're going to discuss the rest of them. Um, <laughs> but I think, did we want to touch briefly on the Best Actress uh, lineup because four of these five have a best actress nominee in them that we've talked about today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was um one of the rare years um you know, that we had five best actress nominees that were all from the best picture lineup. Uh, yeah, we we just talked about four of them. Of course, we'll have the winner next week, but pretty pretty solid uh pretty solid lineup this year as well. Definitely um, Greer Garson in the lead actress category for some reason. Um, but, and I would say maybe the, I think the weakest performance here is probably Irene Dunn. Um, yes. I guess, it, I mean, I wonder if Greer Garson had been in the supporting actress category, if she might have had a better chance of um, of maybe winning. Because I think it's a fantastic, I think she does a fantastic performance. I mean, you know me, I love her, but even I think objectively, I think she has a very charming presence and her role in the film is, um, aside from the gratuitous lack of a death scene, um, just her role is very well realized. Yeah, she's a breath of fresh air for, for the film, um, mm -hmm. even though she's only got about 20 minutes would you say 15 20 minutes yeah um, something like that but yeah and i mean that's why it's not worth a lead nomination but i yeah she i would prefer her to irene dunn um for what she does in those 20 minutes i think it is is more than irene dunn um mm -hmm. on the whole if you proportionately but um yeah and davis and garbo just brilliant both of them it's it's interesting you've also got judy garland not nominated for the wizard of oz so i think the majority of the best picture nominees had a female lead which you don't get much anymore really yeah and um i think judy garland got the um juvenile the academy juvenile award um so i guess they figured that was good enough yeah and of course, Mickey Rooney nominated. Mm. Um, yeah, that's and he'd already been nominated before, or was it? Was this the first of his nominations? I Might think this been. is the first. Yeah, in the Human yeah. Comedies. I think it was in '43. But yeah, very strong lineup. Maybe, maybe if we're if we're um, gonna knock Greer Garson out into supporting, I can think of a couple that may have taken her place. Um, maybe um, Murray Loberan in Wuthering Heights was probably definitely a contender. And um, and may, and Ingrid Bergman maybe in, in Intermezzo as well was a pretty good one and a pretty well-regarded performance. What about um, 
What about Norma Shearer in The Women? Mm. Would she have had a shot? I bet she would have, yeah. I mean, she was kind of always in the discussion just because of her position. Um, but yeah. yeah, I I have to imagine that she was in the in the running as well. Yeah, and of course Garland, um, mm-hmm. despite the juvenile, may have got some votes in yeah. The Wizard of Oz. It's a lovely little performance. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Okay, so we're going to rank the five films we've talked about this week. Um, and next week we'll rank all ten together. So this is sort of like um, who's winning so far kind of <laughs> kind of deal. Mm-hmm. Uh Okay, so uh, I'll. Okay, shall I go first? Yeah, go for it. Okay, so my number five uh, would be Love Affair. Um, mm. I just think maybe it's, it's not as memorable as some of these others. Uh, my number four would be Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Mm. Uh, my number three would be Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. My number two would be, uh, I'm not sure, Dark Victory. And my number one would be Nanochka. But it's close between those top two for me. I can imagine. And a uh, good pun on Love Affair being the least memorable. Uh, well, maybe. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, um, it's also number five for me, um, much as I enjoy parts of it. Um and like I said, it's weird to describe an 86-minute film as draggy, but mm. kind of kind of is. Um, number four for me would be um, Goodbye, Mr. Chips. Because, I mean, yeah, if it had ended sooner, if it had been shorter, um, I think it could have climbed up. But it, I like it a lot. But yeah, it just had too much on its plate, like we said. Um, number three for me would be Dark Victory. Um, number two, uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Yeah. I don't know. Despite all of the things I said I had wrong with it, I'm, I still think it's a Kraken film. And I think yeah. that it, I mean, we didn't mention the, the fact that it was the first film to get two supporting actor, actor, uh, nominations, which I think justifiably, I even think it could have gotten three. I mean, Thomas Mitchell won this year, which we'll talk about next week, but he, he was, <laughs> he was damn good in this one. He could have gotten nominated for this one as well. well I'm um, going with the wind. He was in too. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. I think he was the last person to star in three best picture nominees until the 21st century. I think till John C. Riley in uh, wow. t- 2002. Yeah. Gangs of New York, Chicago. What else is he in? Is he in the hours? He's in the hours, yeah. Um, and then, yeah, number one, I agree, Ninochka. Um, just sheer enjoyability and just Lubitsch, when he's on, he's on. And it's hard to argue with that. Okay. Um, all right. So that was part one. We've got um, a website. It's categoricallyoscars.com. And we're on Twitter at categorically o. Um, yeah, and next week we're going to finish it off with, uh, of mice and men stagecoach, the wizard of Oz, Wuthering Heights, and of course the winner gone with the wind, which should be banned according to some people. Um, you know, I'm, I listen to those arguments, but, um, I'm not for, for I'll save it for next week, but I'm curious as to what the argument is to ban Gone with the Wind. All right, till next week. We'll talk all about it, I'm sure. Yeah, t- tomorrow is another day. That's right, it is. <laughs> not so loud, pal. They might hear you out front. But uh, I've seen enough of this married life, you know. I had a friend who was married, and uh, the first time he came home at 8 a.m., his wife hit the ceiling. She, uh, She hit the ceiling. She was a poor shot. That's that's a joke. She was a poor shot. But uh, that's enough of that. Let's have a song, Mr. Mack. Uh, all the way.
When you find a lover, it's no good unless you love her. All the way, never just a little. Don't go dealing from the middle. All the way, stay there for the full nine innings and pitch with all your heart. Stay there. Double up your winning. Don't let go of her if you're smart. You won't find another who is in your corner.